Uh, all right, well, I'd like to introduce uh, Brian Hogan to you. Uh, he's become uh, a friend uh, of the church. He'll read uh, a little bit about uh, the bio of the Hogans in the back of the uh, program. Uh, basically, they have been church planters in unreached corners uh, of the globe, uh, most notably Mongolia. I think we'll hear some stories about that. Uh, when they arrived in Mongolia, there was maybe, you know, along the lines of a dozen believers in the country, and now we're hearing there 40,000 is a number somebody kicked out. Higher. Bunches and bunches uh, of believers, and so they have seen uh, explosive growth and explosive evangelism and explosive church planting, uh, which we're very much interested in. And I just wanted to mention... Um, one of the reasons I love to have the Hogans here is because they have seen and experienced a level of fruitfulness in evangelism that we have not seen and experienced yet to a degree. Uh, and so I want you all to open your hearts and not only learn uh, the practical lessons uh, that he's offering, uh, but to drink of the faith that comes from what they have actually seen, what they've experienced, and the stories uh, that they can tell. Uh, so with that introduction, come on up, Brian. Give him uh, some warm aloha. Thank you. Good morning, aloha. Um, so I have a story to share with you this morning. Um, I'm really excited to bring to you because basically God made me to be a storyteller. And so when I get to do this, I'm in my power alley. And when I do other things, I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know what I'm doing. So... Um, this is a story of a place and a time where the kingdom of God like broke out like a lava flow, you know? Normally it's advancing and we have these parables about how it starts off like a little leaven, little lump of thing and it goes through the whole lump or, you know, it goes uh, like a plant, a mustard seed. But sometimes the kingdom of God just rushes into a void through a breach in the enemy's lines and we got to be part of something like that. And there was absolutely no one special on our team. And if you take away anything today, what I'm praying that you'll take away is you'll hear about this incredible thing the Father did with people who were just willing to say yes and cooperate with Him. There's nobody special on our team. There's no missionary heroes in this story. It's just that God decided to expand His family into a whole new group of people. And we got to go along for the ride. And so we're really real, and you'll figure that out by the end of this. You know, it's no ooh, ah, you know. Um, I hope you meet my wife because she's by far my better half, and she'll be over there at our table later. But I just want to start out this story in the, in the limited time we have. Um, Mongolia is where God took us. In 1989, com uh, communism had completely locked off Mongolia from the rest of the world. Even before communism, there is not one Mongolian believer in Jesus Christ. Missionaries had gone there and they'd failed spectacularly, hadn't made any converts at all. And so when communism came, um, it closed it off in darkness. And, and at the end of that, in 1989, when the walls were falling all over the world, Mongolia got its independence, it became a non-communist nation, a democracy, and at that time still zero believers, no churches. And um, I found this eight years uh, after that, or just a, yeah, just less than a decade after communism fell, 
Tens of thousands of Mongolians are active in aggressively missionary churches. New York Times in an article very hostile to the spread of Christianity. But they were forced to admit this. And that the Mongols were already going as missionaries to other nations. Now how did we get there from zero in less than 10 years? I was just reading about the Hawaiian revival in Hilo back in the 18, somebody yell it out, 1830s I want to guess, or 40s. 10 years, that's how long the real power of it lasted. And so in 10 years, we saw a nation transformed. How did that happen? Well, that's the story we're going to talk about today. For Louise and I, it started out among a very obscure place. We were missionaries to the Navajo Indians. First-term missionaries out there, wet behind the ears, thought we knew everything. If you go as a missionary, enjoy that first year because you'll know more then than you'll ever know for the rest of your life. <laughs> and so uh, we were taking care of Navajo boys for a school, Christian school out there. So we had 18 Navajo boys living in our house, wild Indians, loved every minute of it. We had no idea what God was really up to because what he was preparing us for among the Navajo tribe was Mongolia, an almost identical culture to the Navajos. When we got out with the Navajo, we met this couple, Rick and Laura Leatherwood. And Rick later became the Apostle of Mongolia. He was really the, the Paul of the nation of Mongolia. And God had put Mongolia on his heart when it was a completely closed nation. And so Rick was always talking about Mongolia while he was learning to be a missionary to the Navajo. And I called him on it. I said, man, you're, you're wrecking my foreign file, which isn't very good to begin with. I'm trying to fill it with Navajo stuff, and you're all about Mongolia. And he said, Brian, you don't understand. God is going to open up the nation of Mongolia any day now, and me and my family are going to be ready. I'm studying Navajo culture because it's as close as I can get. And he went on to explain that the Navajo and the Mongolians lived in the same kind of houses, herded sheep rode horses, had a DNA connection. They, they were, the Navajo were a tribe of Mongols that had crossed the Bering Straits on the land bridge from Asia. They were the last tribe to do so. So they were the most Mongolian of all American Indians. And here God had us learning how to be missionaries to Navajo, I mean to Mongolians, before we even knew about Mongolia. I grew up in a household where every once in a while my mom would say, you know, I'm going to knock you to Mongolia or something. It, it meant the same. She used it interchangeably with Lower Slobovia, which I later found out is not a place. So I thought Mongolia wasn't a place. <laughs> so it, it's just an imaginary land. And yet God was preparing us culturally to go to the Mongolians in a way that they could receive and accept. And we spent long hours sitting around with Navajos, learning how to, to learn from them and the protocol, really. Now, it's not like Polynesian protocol, you know, there's no tongue sticking out or anything like that. It's a, li it's a little bit different with the Navajo. It's will you sit in our presence in silence for a long time before we start talking about important things. And that's hard for an American. So I had to learn all that and everything. And um, we had a wonderful time out there. But during that time, we took a, a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And um, that class rocked our world, changed our whole heart and mindset. We understood what missions was about. We took it out on the Navajo reservation and it caused us to leave the mission field. And some people think re Perspectives recruits you for missions. I don't know. My testimony is it made me quit my job as a missionary. 
And we finished out the year and uh, went back to California, started leading perspectives classes, but God had put a call on our hearts to plant churches the way that Jesus and Paul planted churches. Churches that would rapidly multiply through families and households, one to the other to the other, and turn the world upside down. We'd never been part of a church like that. I'd grown up in the vineyard and was part of the, one of the first vineyards. But, and we planted churches little by, you know, one or two a year. But this was something different. We'd been exposed to this idea of explosive uh, church multiplication. And we were excited and looking forward to a chance to do something about it. Um, we ended up wanting to train to work among the nations. And YWAM had a training school called the School of Frontier Missions. And we wanted to take that. But they said, oh, there's this little thing called a DTS that you have to take first. And we were like, oh, darn. Uh, but we did. And we loved it. It was wonderful. And the DTS works on the worker. And then the School of, of Frontier Missions gives you the tools you need to do the work. And it was kind of a one-two punch. In 1992, Louise and I and our children went up to Oregon and got prepared to go to the nations. And God was speaking Mongolia to us. And um, it, was, it had just opened up. Everything Rick Leatherwood had said came to pass. And so we were excited about getting in there. Um, we learned of a YWAM team that had, was just getting started. It was only two people. A Swedish couple, Magnus and Maria Alphonse, and they were looking for church planning partners to go to a city called Erdenet. Now the exciting thing about this to us was that God had been speaking to us that we couldn't work where other missionaries were already working and planting churches. He said, don't build on somebody else's foundation. The things I've laid on your heart, the New Testament principles that you're going to want to be implementing won't work when there's churches that are the American model happening right next door. It just won't work. The believers will be confused. They'll say, oh, how come they have a building and we meet in the living room and, you know, all of this. So he wanted us to go somewhere where no one was working. Well, that was pretty easy in Mongolia because 100% of the missionaries were working in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. And here's Ulaanbaatar right there. And so they were all there, 100% of them. So when Magnus said, I want to plant a church in Erdnet where there are 70,000 people and zero believers, we were all over it. And we were YWAMers, we had the exact same training, we had the same mentor in church planting, and we were like, we need to be a part of this team. So we formed a team for the city of Erdnet. Now Erdnet's a brand new city. It was formed because they discovered copper ore. In 1975, almost overnight, they built a city to exploit Asia's largest deposit of copper. It's the largest copper mine in all of Asia. And Erdnet, the city popped up overnight. They called it Brezhnev's Gift because it just, one day they had two cities in Mongolia and the next day they had three cities. Erdnet is Mongolia's third largest city, which sounds a lot better than Mongolia's smallest city. There's only three cities in Mongolia, so we just say the third largest. Uh, um, because it was new. God was doing something. I had no idea. Magnus had no idea. None of us had any idea why Erdenet specifically. But God had a plan. It was a brand new city. And these long-held powers and principalities that had ruled Mongolia and deals that had been made to give the land to demons and all that, none of that had happened there. It was an empty valley until 1975. Satan didn't really have any specific thing going on there. And because the city, you'd think, well, there were people there, so certainly Satan would want to be there. He'd want to assign somebody, 70,000 people. He owned the whole country. Why? You know, everybody that moved there was an atheist. He didn't have to worry about it. And God did an end run 
around the devil that he never saw coming. Erdnet was a spiritually clean city. You get off the train there and you go, this is so different. In the capital city, you felt like you were walking under a cloud of violence and murder. There was a prevailing spirit of murder. It was the murder capital of the world the year we moved there. More murders than anywhere else on planet Earth. Beheading was the crime of choice. There were heads everywhere. The police were finding heads all over the city. But Erdnet, nothing like that. And people would come up and just go, oh my gosh, I wish I worked here. So we had this really no opposition. Erdnet means treasure or precious in the Mongolian language. And God told us that he was about to pour out the precious treasure of his Holy Spirit in this valley. And that it was going to change all of Mongolia and nations beyond. And this was a big problem. We told other missionaries and they're like, pishaw. Yeah, that's an old-fashioned term for I don't believe you. That can't happen because Erdnet's uh, in the sticks. Everything in Mongolia starts in the capital and goes outward. That's communism, you know, and that's what they had established. And it says any move of God has to start in Ulaanbaatar, not in Nazareth. I mean, Erdnet. <laughs> and so we just said, well, that's what he's telling us to do, and we're not allowed to work in the same place as you guys anyway, so okay. And we just got our heads down to the plow and started going. Um, we had a, 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 a secret weapon, if you will. <laughs> there was a young believer from the capital who on an evangelistic trip up to Erdnet with Magnus and Maria, the city had caught her heart and God had called her to be in an apostolic ministry to Erdnet. She asked if she could come along with our team and work to see her people turn to Jesus in Erdnet. Well, she was a teenage girl. Her name was uh, Precious Treasure, actually, uh, her uh, Happy Treasure, Erden Bayer. And um, so her name and the city's name were very similar. She came up with Magnus and Maria. Fourteen teenage girls gave their lives and hearts to Jesus Christ. They did a street evangelism and 14 responded. Lots of people were like hanging back. Older people weren't getting saved anywhere in Mongolia. There were no believers over the age of 20 in Mongolia. They just, youth were responding. But they were so hungry for change, we could have told them that God was Michael Jackson or a giant kumquat, and they would have responded. It was, I'm not saying that their faith wasn't real. I'm just saying they were wide open and ripe. The adults had been lied to for 70 years by the Marxists and the Leninists, and they were like, uh, more foreigners with a new story to sell. I'm not so sure about this. There was a lot of hanging back. But these teenagers were open and 14 teenage girls responded. Magnus baptized them. By the way, those are the only Mongolians we ever baptized during our whole time in Mongolia were the original 14. Well, who baptized the thousands that came after that? They did, yeah. Yeah, teenage girls baptized others. And we just set them free and said, Jesus says to do this. You need to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Go for it. And they started baptizing their friends who they led to the Lord. Every one of them was a natural evangelist. I never had to tell a Mongolian, wow, now share this with others. <laughs> they were off doing it. And you're like, I, I hadn't finished explaining it yet. <laughs> you know, come back, there's more. So uh, it was just an amazing, amazing thing. These groups, we formed three cell groups, three small home churches, met in living rooms and apartments, and we just started teaching them to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we formed these cell groups, uh, these house churches. We didn't know what to call them at the time, so we called them cell groups. I wouldn't call them that today because each one was a real church. They had communion. They, you know, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They prayed for each other. They shared in the Word. It was all participatory. It's very, very similar to what you're going to be doing at these small groups this coming week. And so, and what we did in the Bible teaching, we focused completely on obeying Jesus. Turns out, um, because the Great Commission said, it's very simple, right? Jesus is talking to his followers and he says, hey guys, you're going to be my witnesses and you need to make disciples in all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And one of them, say Andrew probably, or somebody said, hey Jesus, that's almost impossible. We've been with you for three years. You've taught us so many things. Da, 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 da. And he goes, Andrew, Andrew, everything I commanded you, what have I commanded you? Oh, well, you told us to love each other. Yeah, love, that's a big one. I said it a lot, didn't I? So there's lots of commands of Jesus, but he repeats himself. Turns out there's seven clear, simple commands of Jesus that every disciple on the planet follows. And here they are. <laughs> I'm using a cross so you can remember these. Because if you're going to make disciples, it's a little embarrassing to say, hey, there's seven commands of Jesus, they're so important, and I can remember five of them. You know, then your disciple thinks, maybe I should find another disciple who actually knows all of them. There's only seven. So here they are. The cross will help you remember them because the biggest commandment is what? What's Jesus' main commandment? Love. He said if you do that perfectly, you don't have to worry about anything else, didn't he? He said the whole law is contained in this. Love God and love your neighbor. Love others. So that's one command, but two parts. And so under loving God, you have three different commandments here. You have um, repent, believe, and receive the Holy Spirit. Those three go together. You can't really do one without the others. And it continues through your whole life, doesn't it? I mean, I repented today, you know. So there's a, and you have to ask the Holy Spirit to come in and fill you and everything. So repent, believe, and receive the Holy Spirit. Baptize, okay? The command is baptize, actually, not be baptized. I think if I asked you how many of you have baptized someone else, there'd be rather less hands than for the question, how many of you have been baptized? Well, when you were baptized, you were helping somebody else obey the Lord Jesus Christ because the command is baptize. And you say, oh, why don't I baptize anybody? Well, the short answer is we have religious professionals because hundreds of years ago we discovered that baptism is the most difficult and complicated command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dunking somebody under water requires a seminary education, okay? And <laughs> I knew how to baptize people when I was like eight years old swimming at the community swimming pool. You just swim underwater and grab their legs and boop, down they go. <laughs> Baptism is really easy and a brand new believer can baptize people they lead to the Lord and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, these teenage girls would come up, we did it in a bathtub, because in Mongolia if you baptize outdoors at the wrong season, you kill your disciple. It's negative 30, okay? So the water's really hard. It's not a chemical problem, it's just hard water in the winter. Uh, so uh, we would baptize them in a bathtub, bring them out of the water, they'd, they'd step out of the tub, they'd get a towel around them, and often they'd baptize the next person or the next two people in line because they'd already won their friends to Jesus while during the week and a half they were waiting for our baptism. We were doing baptism frequently. We baptized new believers without unnecessary delays. It wasn't a graduation ceremony. It wasn't a diploma. It was simply entering the door into God's family. 
And you have to be on the inside to make your mistakes because that's when we treat you right, right? If you're one of us and you fall, we're like all around you. It's okay. Don't let the devil beat you up. He's defeated. But if you're not one of us and we're saying, well, we're waiting to see if you can walk the narrow road without falling over the edge, you know? Uh, He didn't fall. Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. So uh, this is how missionaries are. We're like, oh, I don't know if they're ready to be baptized. You're ready to be baptized the moment you're born. If you decide to follow Jesus and you're repenting of your sin, baptize them. You don't leave new babies out on the stoop until they know how to go in the potty, right? You bring them in and you let them poop on you if you don't get the diaper on in time. You know, they vomit on you. I don't let my friends vomit on me, but I let babies vomit on me and I laugh about it. So this is how it is with new believers. Bring them in, baptize them. Talk with dad. Prayer is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that this relationship needs to be sustained and ongoing on a daily basis. And we need to talk with God. That's relationship. Love others. We have break bread. This is is communion. It's Eucharist. It's whatever you call it in your tradition. But it's more than that. Okay? It's also uh, that all our gatherings, when we gather together, when we break bread... Um, that's church. We're doing it right now. Okay, I didn't get much to eat here. Yeah, that's a problem. We often don't get enough to eat. But uh, that's what breaking bread is. It's the ecclesia, the gathering of the church. You're obeying Jesus when you gather. Give generously. Jesus' command is that these brand new believers who were impoverished, unemployed teenagers, literally didn't have two tugriks to rub together, began to give. They didn't even know. Well, what does that mean? They'd ask us, how much do you give? None of your business. Well, how much does God want me to give? I have no idea. You know, they wanted a number. They wanted a percentage. (laughs) We could have fished in the Old Testament and brought out the tithe or something. Instead, we were teaching the commands of Jesus. And I said, he says, give generously. What does that mean? You better find out. How can I do that? You need to talk to God. It's another command, you know? And so they go off and talk to God, and God would tell them how to give. And these incredible, transformational kingdom transactions began to take place, and they'd come and share in their small groups, and people would be blown away. Jesus told you to do that, and then you did it? Oh my gosh, and that's what happened? I want to do that. Lay hands on me. I want to hear from Jesus how to give. Isn't that the reaction you want from your disciples? I mean, it was like discipleship with jet engines because instead of giving them laws written on stone we just simply helped them to realize what the spirit was etching into their heart and they were hearing from God and obeying him it's a lot easier than obeying Brian it really is you know so and then make disciples teach others to obey Jesus's commands how simple is that I mean these are things you can share on a napkin with somebody the first five minutes you know them they'll spend a lifetime unpacking it you know I'm still figuring out how to fully obey Jesus and everything after how many years of walking with him but a brand new believer can obey all seven of Jesus's commands from day one and that was our standard that's what we wanted we wanted obedient disciples who could change a nation well um, uh, we, I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but we had to learn the language, start out in the capital city and language learning, learn a little, use it a lot was our byword. We learned language like children just by going out and talking to people in the streets, in the marketplace, in the countryside. Oh, please stop this. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, good. That's a good place to stop. <laughs> Big man, little horse. Don't know why this slide is in there. No animals were harmed in the filming of this presentation. 
uh, our daughters, we had three daughters when we moved to Mongolia, Melody, Molly, and Alice. Uh, they were uh, 10, 7, or no, 7, 4, and 2 when we moved there. When we left, they were older, of course. And um, they would go out and make friends with local kids on the playgrounds. It was too cold, so they'd bring their friends home. And so we got to know families and everything. They were a great door opener for us into Mongolian lives. The Magnus and Maria started with that baptism and, and formed those groups. By one year, the church had grown to 120. It was incredible. It was so wonderful. It was one of the most exciting churches in the country. And yet, we had a problem because it was 120 teenage girls. These girls had won their friends to the Lord. That's natural. Their friends were teenage girls, and we hit a point of critical mass where we could get guys to visit because actually they were strangely attracted to our congregation. Uh, but we couldn't get them to stay because they'd say, it's a chick thing. That's not for guys. That's like going to sleepless in Seattle, you know, or something like that. It's just not meant for guys. So um, we had a problem, and we were praying as we joined the team uh, at that point, we moved up to Erdenet, one year in the country of learning the language, and we moved up to Erdenet with our family, moved into an apartment, and we were calling out to God, moved there on a cold winter's day. We made a lot of mistakes, and moving in the winter was one of them. <laughs> but um, we were calling out to God to expand his church in Erdenet beyond this narrow cul-de-sac of society. We were half a youth group, essentially. And so um, we were also, our family was growing at the time. Um, we had discovered that Louise was expecting a child. I didn't, it was never in our plans to have a baby in Mongolia, but we did. And when God was there, we had uh, Jedediah, our son, was born in our apartment, the first foreign baby ever born in the history of the city of Erdnet. There'd never been a non-Mongolian born in that city. And it might have been the first home birth, unless there was an accident, because they had a hospital there, but it was scary. <laughs> um, the church had grown in all sorts of ways that weren't numerical. They grew in indigenous worship. We actually held out translated worship songs. They had all the worship songs of the vineyard over there in Mongolia, the songs I had grown up in the faith with, songs that my pastor had written were in Mongolia. I'd be sitting there with a group of Mongolians, and they'd be like, you are the vine, and we are the branches. i go... I was there the first time that song was ever performed. It was in our home group. He tested it out on us, Danny Daniels, you know. And, and it actually formed a revulsion in me. As much as I loved that song, I had teethed on it. I was like, God never intended this to be translated into Mongolian. There are songs in them that aren't coming out because we're using the steamroller of Western music. And they think, well, the gospel came from them, so they must know how to sing to God too. And it was crushing any Mongolian creativity in song. And so we, uh, we, Magnus and I made the decision to not allow those songs in. We were so geographically remote from the other churches that if we didn't teach them a song, they didn't know a song. And so when they asked us for more songs, we just said, write them yourself. And uh, they were like, oh, we don't know how to do that. Yes, you do. You have songs. And so they'd start taking the kind of songs they heard on the radio, that style of music. We called it Mongolian pop. And then they were teenagers, so that's what they liked. They weren't doing the old classic, you know, countryside. Those kind of songs. They were just doing Mongolian pop. It was like songs about your mother and your horse. <laughs> okay, we sing about our girlfriends in the West. They sing about their mother and their horse. I don't know what that means about a people, but that's real country music, I'm telling you. Uh, so, and they'd make those into songs about the Father, songs about God. Um, 
the other, and so the worship got more and more, um, it got more and more indigenous. And of the people, they began wearing their own costumes. The teenagers there never wore Mongolian dress. In fact, we made the mistake of suggesting it and they acted like we'd just come up with the most bizarre suggestion they'd ever heard. He said, that's what my grandmother wears. I, I look like a bumpkin from the countryside. No. And then we dropped it. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to them. They went home and asked their mothers and their grandmothers to make them these dresses and months later. And it just got more, the, the indigenous instruments, everything began to really flow in our church. The other churches all sang completely translated songs. And um, what happened was these believers made cassette tapes. And when they'd visit the capital, they'd meet other Christians. And they'd say, listen to this. And it gave permission. And songwriters started popping out in all the churches. Some of the missionaries didn't even like it. They were like, well, we don't know about their music. Maybe it's of the devil. You know, we just don't know. And so, but it didn't matter because it was a grassroots indigenous worship music. Um, drama became really important. I wish I had time to talk about it, but that was indigenous. We didn't introduce it. They had drama every time we got together in a larger meeting. There was drama. They'd act out stories from the Bible and all sorts of things. And uh, I one time had the lady who worked at the curtain shop in town say, I love your church because your drama team buys all my white and yellow curtains. They make robes, you know, <laughs> yards of cloth. So... <laughs> Anyway, so many people got saved through seeing the stories of Jesus acted out, and Mongols love drama. We finally got the breakthrough we've been calling out to God for in um, April of 1994, about four months after we joined the team, uh, the Spirit of God descended on Erdenet. I don't know how else to describe it. It was unreal. Two things happened in rapid succession. The first thing was, as a leadership, as the apostolic team, through lots of research and lots of asking questions, we'd come to the conclusion that the missionaries had been using the wrong word for God. The term for God, Yurtan Sinitsin, that was in the Mongolian New Testament, what we were hearing from older people, they'd watch the Jesus film and they'd come out and they'd go, that was a good movie. That was almost as good as that Schwarzenegger one. What was that? Terminator. Now there's a movie. And we go, no, no, no. But they, you know, that one was fake and this one's real. So not quite the same, right? And they go, come on. It's science fiction. Everybody thought the Jesus film was science fiction. Why? Because the name for God that a Bible translator had made up sounded like it was from outer space. It was master of the universe. They'd never known a master of the universe. They didn't know who this was. They had a word for God, but he'd rejected it. He rejected it because the Buddhists had used it 400 years before. They'd say, oh, Lord Buddha, he's a Borhan, he's a God. And so because the Buddhists had used it, he felt like he couldn't use it. But they did have a local word for God that everybody knew, and it could mean everything from a tiny little idol sitting in the corner of your house to the creator of heaven and earth. It was a generic term for that which is worshipped or for deity. Do we have a word like that in English, by the way? God. We've actually used it already this morning in the worship of our Father. It's just a German word. It's not biblical. God. They were running around in the forest worshiping Woden for heaven's sakes. And the missionaries came in and said, well, what, do you, what word do you use for this? You know, they didn't introduce Theus. They didn't introduce Deus. They didn't introduce Yahweh. They just went with the local word. And so that we made the decision to go with Borchan. And it was a controversial decision. There were people who were very upset thought we were trying to start a cult or something, you know, there, there was a lot of pushback. But we were so far away 
that they couldn't do anything about us. Took overnight by train to get out and rebuke us. Then they'd have to hang around all day and spend another night getting back to the capital city. So um, we, we changed God's name in April of 1994. We told the believers, look, call God anything you want in your private devotions, but in public proclamation, when there's people there who don't know God yet, identify them. This is Borchan. It's not just Borchan, it's Amit Borchan, the living God. It's Gans Unen Borchan, the one true God. It's Itzig Borchan, this is Father God. These are things about God they've never even thought of. So tell them who he is. Give him a proper introduction. And so they began to do that in April. At the exact same moment, God sent four Russian Bible school students, young, pretty, blonde girls, the least people you'd ever expect to reach Mongolians. There's a lot of history there. There's no way it should have worked. God sent them, and they asked if they could pray. We sent them out with a translator. They began to pray in the poor districts of the city, and every single person they prayed for was miraculously healed. A lame woman walked and actually danced. She was a dancer, and she'd been stricken for 10 years. Uh, her husband had his hearing restored from stone deaf. He could hear perfectly. They prayed for a boy who'd been mute from birth. He was the mute of Erdenet. Everybody in the whole city knew him, and he began to praise God. He began to praise God at first in tongues that no one could understand, and somebody said, ah, shoot, he can't even speak Mongolian. And he stopped praising God and looked at that guy who he'd grown up with and said, of course I can speak Mongolian. And he had fluent Mongolian, and people just were marveling. People swarmed into the kingdom. And it was a one-two punch because they said, who's doing this? They knew that Russian girls didn't heal people. They'd had 70 years to observe Russians. And, and so they, who's doing this? And the translator would say, it's Yurtin Sabor. It's Borchan. Because just two days before, she'd been told not to use Yurtin Sinitsin when preaching to the public. So she used the name of God, and for the first time, older people responded in belief. And we, and we were the only church in the country with all generations, overnight. <laughs> this guy led 24 people to Christ his first evening as a believer. He showed up at my house, said, they're all new Christians, what do I do with them? And I said, well, now you're a house church pastor, and uh, no, you've only been saved a few hours, but your house church is too big. So we helped him to form two house churches, and he had a disciple already, he taught his neighbor how to win people to Jesus. And uh, it's just amazing what God did. And so we had this outpouring. Now, people started to talk about the Airnet Revival. And they came up to visit the Airnet Revival. People came from New Zealand and all sorts of places all over the world. Um, Tasmania, you know, uh, South Africa. Oh, I want to see the Airnet Revival. And I used to tease them. I'd pick them up at the train and say, oh, we don't got one. They go, what? You know, you cross the whole planet to get somewhere. You want to find what you went there to see. Say, oh, no, we don't have a revival here. They go, what? No, I heard people raised from the dead. That happened. I heard people walk, lame people walk, blind people see, all this stuff. I go, oh, oh, you mean the revival. We don't have a revival. We just got a revival. It's never happened here before. We don't need to wake up the dead, you know. <laughs> it's, this is the first time around for us. Um, well, in November of 19, this uh, outpouring, this revival, just continued, well, almost without opposition, just flooding the countryside, tons of people getting saved, daughter churches got planted in other places, and then Satan caught on. We got so much notoriety that the kingdom of darkness came in like a flood to, to correct this, I'm sure, from their point of view. On November 2nd, we had a baby boy 
uh, Jedediah was born in our apartment, Jedediah Hogan, our first son, and with his birth we entered into two solid months of extreme spiritual attack as a church, as a team, as a family. Everything began to fall apart. In fact, we actually felt like this church is not going to survive this attack. We were actually, by the end of it, by December, talking about pulling up stakes and starting over somewhere else. It was that devastating. We had elders fall into sin. We had a church split. We had all sorts of attack. The government was kicking us out of the country. It was, it was just a horrible, horrible time. And on December 24th, on Christmas Eve, we woke up and found that our son Jedediah had died during the night of sudden infant death syndrome. History has shown that throughout the ages, whenever the kingdom advanced, someone first had to pay a terrible price. And that was certainly true for us. You don't expand the kingdom of God without pushback from the enemy's kingdom. Planting a church is an act of war. It really is. Well, this is the last picture taken of our son. He learned to smile. We put him to bed that night and he never woke up. Sudden infant death syndrome. It was like waking up to a nightmare that Christmas. Um, somehow, I don't know how, the miracle, miraculous grace of God, we got through it. And we mourned our loss so far away from family and friends. We were just dying inside, really. And um, ended up on a lonely hillside, hacking a grave into frozen soil. It was so hard to do. And burying my only son. <sighs> It was a horrible time, and yet it was at his memorial service. We went down the mountain and went to a memorial service that the church was putting together for us. And at his memorial service, God gave me a challenge. I got up there and I said to the church, I don't know what you guys are going to do. I don't know if there's going to be a church here to celebrate Jesus' birthday next year. I really don't. But I do know one thing. The enemy has crossed a line here. He's gone too far. There were two deaths. A girl in the church dropped dead just two days after my son a day before this memorial service for no reason. And I said, the enemy's crossed the line. He's killed two of our, our weakest and most precious. And he's a liar, he's a thief, and Jesus said he's been a murderer from the very beginning. And he's gone to murder. And I don't know how bad it's gonna get, but we were gonna leave and now we're not. We're gonna tear his kingdom apart for the rest of our lives, limb from limb. We're gonna do whatever we can to damage him. He has made a huge mistake. And if he doesn't like it, he'd better kill all of us. And there was a declaration of war made at my son's memorial service. And if you make a declaration of war to a room full of Mongolians, you had better know what you're doing because they were born for it. And they had been waiting for it like this. And it was what engaged the church. And the church went to war. They began to, um, they, they immediately called for fasting and prayer for the entire church. Everybody that remained. And everybody began to fast and pray. We moved into apartments. We, uh, when it got too cold to be outside. And um, at 3 a.m., we didn't eat anything. It went on through the evening into the early morning hours. At 3 a.m., in every single group in Erdnet, something broke. We felt it, we heard it, we experienced it, and it was the power of this attack had literally been broken over the knee of God. And everybody knew it. We just all got up and went home. In our group, we kind of didn't know what to do. People were saying, what should we do now? And we were like, uh, I don't know. And this young new believer said, well, can't we just go home now? <laughs> it was like, 
Okay, it's cool because you're a new believer and you have no idea how to be spiritual. We have to sing a song first. And so we sang a song and then we went home because everybody knows Christians just don't go home. So, so anyway, um, the spiritual warfare turned the attack around. Um, the church began to just explode again after being almost crushed to nothing. The, and Jesus healed everything that had happened. That's what I want to tell you. Everything that had happened except for the two deaths which he'd already healed in eternity. Every single, the church split, came back 100% of them at the same time, weeping and repenting. They left the cult they had joined with nobody, and they just came back. We, we don't know what came over us. We're so sorry. Will you take us back? It was amazing. Everything, everybody had fallen in sin was restored. Amazing. We were part of a team. It was multinational. There were Swedes, Russians, and Americans on our team. We didn't do this by ourselves. Magnus and Maria were the team leaders. There's Maria, there's Magnus. Mats was a Swedish baker who joined us to develop small business. Ruslan and Svetlana joined us um, in the areas of worship, but also they took over the small Russian church that we had accidentally started. Um, it, it was. We were trying to start a Mongolian church and a Russian church started. It's like, oh darn, I don't even know Russian, you know. I only knew a few words. Hello, goodbye, and one kilogram of cheese, please. That's all I knew how to say in Russian. So hard to lead a church with that. You try and come up with spiritual things. Blessed are the cheese makers. Uh, anyway, um, and then uh, it was, Lance was a young American guy and our family rounded out the team. And they all joined, everybody except for uh, Magnus and Maria and us joined in the in the second and third year of the process. Okay, I know I've got to hurry here. We, um, we were training people, this was a school discipleship we started that was absolutely fantastic. It was for people who were just hogs for God and just weren't getting enough. So they, they came to this and it was so early in the morning because we didn't want people to quit their jobs. We had so few people who had jobs. And so we didn't want them to quit. And so we had it like absurdly early in the morning. It was so cold I thought I was going to die. And at the end of it we said we're never doing this again. That was horrible. And the Mongols said oh yes we are. It was the first time they ever argued with us. They said that was the best thing ever. And they just totally argued with us. And so we finally gave up and said, okay, we'll do it again. But we're going to do it in the afternoon because that'll be a lot better. And they said, what? You can't make disciples in the afternoon. How will you know if they're really following Jesus unless they're risking losing their fingers and their nose and their toes with its extreme cold, you know? We're like, wow. They like things harsh, it turns out. Mongols are a harsh people. And the harsher it is, the better it is. So. Um, we turned over everything we were doing to the Mongolians. Uh, we worked ourselves out of a job until they were leading everything. They'd been leading the house groups almost from the beginning because there were too many of them for us to lead. And um, then it was time to go. And the way we explained it to them, we found this scripture. It's um, Paul in the book of Acts. He says, um, if I can get back to it here. <laughs> he says, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything. He's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks they must be uh, turned to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Next. I know, not I strongly suspect, I know that after I leave savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. You're going to be attacked from the outside. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. He's talking to the Ephesian elders he trained, and he says, you guys, some of you will attack the church from the inside. 
Then why are you leaving, Paul? Are you mad? Has your great learning driven you crazy? No, he knows that whether he leaves or not, attack is the lot of the church. We're in a fallen, war-filled planet. So he says, so run around with your hands in the air, shrieking like little girls. You guys remember him giving that advice, right? No, Paul didn't say that. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. It's going to come. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each, uh, each of you, night and day with tears. We had been there three years when we handed the church over to the Mongolians. And people said, you can't, you're crazy. You can't leave now. Three years isn't enough time to plant a church. The other missionaries jumped on us like ducks on a June bug uh, and told us we, we couldn't leave. They were going to have to take over after we left. We were so irresponsible. They said, we knew you YWAMers would do something like this. No training, just come out here wet behind the ears, you know, no seminary. So we found this scripture and we were so encouraged. You can plant a church in three years. Happened at least once. Okay, turned out that was the longest Paul ever took to plant a church. So he did all of the rest of them in, you know, months or weeks. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, this, is, this gave us such confidence. And so on um, the end, uh, or in April, at Easter Sunday, next slide, Easter Sunday, 1996, we gathered on stage with the Mongolian leaders that God had raised up and that we had trained, and we made a baton. We explained the relay race, the Olympic relay race, because this was an Olympic year, and the Mongols were already into it. And we said, we're passing the baton to you. Our time of running the race is over. It's now our time to cheer and watch you run and watch you get crowned with the victor's laurels. And we passed that baton to them, and on that day, Easter Sunday, history was made. For the first time ever in the history of the universe, there was an indigenous reproducing Mongolian church planting movement. We had 450 there, but it had grown in daughter churches and everything. The movement was much more than that. It was probably over 800 at that point. And, you know, our, our apartments weren't even cold yet, and it had grown even more after we left. That's... Uh, they started all kinds of mercy ministries, I wish I had time to tell you about, but nobody on our team had the gift of mercy. We were all completely merciless. We did a spiritual gifts test and we all scored zero for mercy. And we felt bad about it, you know. Well, as bad as you can feel when you have no mercy. But the Mongols were overflowing with it. They started growing vegetables for the poor. They started feeding hungry street children. They started saving babies from abortion. Um, and discipling the moms, you know, it's just amazing, all the things they did, it was so cool, this little baby, they, uh, he was abandoned, and a, and a Christian lady took him in, and her and her husband added him to their children, and they named him Holy Path, or Holy Road, and she told me, she handed him to me, and then said, Brian, the only reason that I care about the children of Mongolia is because I knew your son Jedediah, and I walked through that experience with you, and God changed my heart toward the children of my own country. And she told me that, and I just started bawling, you know. I mean, that is so unfair, you know. But uh, this little boy now is, is headed into school. They're actually raising money to send him to a good school and everything. It's so cool. Go on. Um, we started a mission. Magnus and Maria went back and started the Mongolian Mission Center, which is now called YWAM Erdenet. Uh, we train church planters to go out to other unreached people groups, and they've gone all over the world now. Their goal is to reconquer the empire 
of Genghis Khan, the largest land empire the world has ever known, the empire of the Mongolians. This time they're not comp uh, conquering it with the pony and the bow, they're conquering it under the banner of the Prince of Peace, the Khan of Khans, Jesus Christ. And they're taking his sword, the word, with them. Um, a few years ago, and there was a precious seed planted in that soil that's re resulted in an incredible harvest. This is what it says on his grave, and to Louise and I, those three words are the takeaway. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of the worship of the Mongolians. It says that God, in the book of Revelations, it says that uh, ho holy, 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 a oh, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, because with his blood, God purchased men for God from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. The Lamb of God is worthy of the worship of the nations that he bought. There's a plain in Mongolia that serves the churches of Mongolia and the mission community. It's named after my son. Um, they, when they were praying about what to name it, they felt like Jedediah's short life and his death were the single most important and seminal episode in the planting of the church in Mongolia. Mongols learned to grieve with hope through that and it changed everything for them by watching us grieve. God told us to stay in Mongolia and not leave for our grief. And we wanted to leave. We wanted to go home, grieve, and come back. God said, no, stay here. Do it in front of them. And it seemed stupid, but we did it. And, and since then, we've heard hundreds of times how grieving with hope changed everything for the Mongolians. The most important consideration of a price, even a terrible one, is what you buy with that price. This is an old statistic already. Over 120,000 Mongolians are active in aggressively missionary churches. Jesus is being praised where he's never been praised or worshipped before. Amen. You can clap for that. That's awesome. Could I go to that other, sh the, the other show? Uh, just really quickly, I wanted to tell you, if you're excited by this stuff, we have some stuff on the table over there. I wrote a book. I've never had time to tell this whole story. I certainly didn't tell it today. So I wrote a whole book called There's a Sheep in My Bathtub that's over there on the table. Um, yeah, you can see what Floyd McClung said about that. It's a really good story. You won't be able to put it down. My guarantee is you'll laugh and you'll cry or your money cheerfully returned. Uh, so it's $15. You can get gift copies for only $10, yeah, and it's available for its Kindle and ebook formats too. The sheep says that's not bad. Um, the story, uh, a DVD video of the planning of the church and some other films, great to show in small groups or any kind of venues you have for stirring people up. It's available on the table. This whole story in a two-hour format, live DVD filmed me with the slides and everything, is available on, in a DVD on the table. And um, I teach the whole history of Christianity in a two-hour format, too. So if you're a homeschooler or you know somebody who is, this is a great resource for them. It's exciting, it's funny, and it covers the whole 2,000-year scope of the kingdom of God. Um, my wife, whose picture is not there, there she is, is a midwife. And so she, we're going to um, South Sudan in December to train traditional birth attendants. And to raise money for that, she makes greeting cards. And they're amazing works of art. You have to see them to believe them. They're on the table. Each one comes with an envelope that's made out of a world map. So check those out as well. And that raises money for the South Sudan. And then um, the whole church planning training that I do in YWAM and all over the world is available on DVD as well as on audio CD. It's the whole training. So if you're interested in learning more about planting simple churches, this is the way to do that. 
and go past this. It's just kind of how it looks, okay? We follow the story of Stephanus, first century church planner. Okay, and I can take credit cards, so uh, thank you very much. Let me invite Jordan back up. I don't know what to say now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly what to say after that either. Um, they uh, planted... Uh, an indigenous church planting movement in Mongolia successfully in three years. Uh, today is the sixth anniversary of Blue Water Mission. Uh, we've taken twice as long and done not nearly as much. Yay. Uh, happy birthday to us. Uh, but, you know, a lot of lives uh, have been uh, changed and restored uh, through what the Lord has done uh, with this church and, and the Lord is working through this church and in, uh, in other areas of the world, as you well know. But I do feel like uh, we're, we're just really on the cusp of what we ought to be doing, uh, which is to unleash the kingdom of God uh, on the world in, in a way that is as fruitful uh, as, as what we heard about today. Um, and I am just struck again uh, listening to Brian talk about uh, something that I feel like the Lord has been saying to us uh, for a few months now, uh, which is uh, the beginning uh, is really us embracing evangelism, you know, just worshiping the Lord freely and then releasing uh, the spirit of the Lord evangelistically uh, at home and then wherever we happen to take it. So as the ministry team comes forward today, uh, Brian and Louise can come up and, and, and join that, that team. I would just like to call you forward uh, for a touch from God, an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Um, if, uh, if you just like to embrace that evangelistic call. Uh, we're going to have all these Ohana groups, all these small groups this week. Uh, they are all going to uh, be practicing the simple sort of church that has multiplied uh, so wonderfully in, in Mongolia. And then there will be some of you that take what you receive at those small groups and just start doing it <clears throat> with your non-believing friends. You're going to do church uh, with them uh, before they believe, and then you will baptize them. And you already know that to be true in your heart, I think, as you say it. So if that is you, then you come today to receive ministry. Is that easy enough? Is that an easy enough call? So... I'll just wait. There's the team. The Hogans and uh, the leaders of the church will go over there to pray. Uh, so if you want to respond to that, just get over there. And if the rest of you could stand with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, as Jesus taught us, that your kingdom would come, that we would see your kingdom as it is presented to us in the pages of Scripture, uh, that many would believe, that many would be restored, that many would experience the love of God, and that we would have purposeful lives caught up in this kingdom. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would complete your agenda for every individual in the room this morning. I pray, Lord, uh, for the healing that we need. I pray for the empowerment that we need. I pray for the boldness that we need. I pray that you'd stretch out your hand over all of us. 
and let your kingdom come and your will be done here in our corner of the earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.